We're going to be looking at Revelation 12 and 13 today, but before we begin, I would like for us to hear the words of the first five verses of Revelation 14. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. When I was growing up, there was a show on television um, that, for obvious reasons, could not have ever existed in the world in which we live today. It was a show called Hogan's Heroes. Who here remembers a show or has seen a show called Hogan's Heroes? Somebody in television history thought, you know who's funny? Nazis. Those guys are hysterical and cuddly and warm, and so they created a television show about allied POWs posing as prisoners of war who were really spies occupying a German prisoner of war camp. I enjoyed watching that when I was a little boy. That maybe makes me a bad person at just what it is. I enjoyed watching that when I was a little boy, and I was always intrigued by the fact that these guys were behind enemy lines and, 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 and gaining intel as to the enemy's battle plans so that they could always stay a step of, ahead of, of whatever the Germans were going to do. I, I love war movies, espionage movies that kind of have that theme of people behind the scenes, behind enemy lines, operating in such a way that they are able to gain a leg up on those that oppose them, those that they are fighting. I share that with you today because that is essentially what is happening in our text. Revelation 12 and Revelation chapter 13 are meant to work together to provide intel to the church as they anticipate the opposition that is to come. Now, it may bother you, once again, that we are taking a huge chunk of this book all at once, and I shared with you last week, uh, we're doing that to kind of provide you some perspective on the overall plot. Sometimes we get so in the weeds that we never pay attention to the field that we are in. Another way of thinking about it is this. There is instruction at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book that lets the church know that the church that reads this aloud will be blessed. Now, most of us have only gone through the book of Revelation in small little bite-sized pieces in Sunday night Bible studies or Sunday morning sermons, and we are, are missing the, the 
impact that this book made on the original church. The original church, when they heard this, had it given to them like someone just reading a story. Remember when you were a kid in school and you would sit there and your teacher would read to you and you'd get to hear Charlotte's Web or get to hear, you know, where the red fern grows, read to you, whatever. That's how the church was, was introduced to the book of Revelation. They got into the weeds later. That was an important to do. as a worthwhile thing to do. But they first heard the story. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to let you hear the story of the book of Revelation. And in doing so, we will see today that chapters 12 and 13 work together to help us see how the enemy has always arrayed his forces against God and against his people. And so we will see first in Revelation 12 the enemy's eternal opposition. If you're someone that writes things down, that's what you can write down first. We're going to see in Revelation 12 the enemy's eternal opposition. The purpose of Revelation 12 is to show the spiritual realities that lie behind the persecution of the church. Not just in the future, in that time to come, but the spiritual realities that lie behind all of the persecution of God's people that has ever existed. Never forget what Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 6. He said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What is Paul saying there? He's saying that the battle in the heavenlies manifests themselves in the here and now by way of persecution. So Revelation 12 is meant to show us the events that undergird earthly persecution from the heavenly perspective or the eternal perspective. And I want you to see how that works as I begin reading in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. It says that a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet. And on her head was a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. That is the first vision of three visions that are given to us in Revelation chapter 12. And that first vision is meant to give us historical perspective on what has been going on by way of Satan's attack against the purposes of God since the very beginning of time. These images that we are given are really some of the easiest to grasp on first reading that we run into in the book of Revelation. It's pretty easy and likely true that you already picked up on the fact that the uh, radiant woman 
that you see here in this passage of Scripture is meant to represent the nation of Israel. Then you probably already picked up that the dragon is meant to be understood as Satan. And then, of course, you understand that the child is meant to represent Jesus. This undergirds the narrative arc of the Bible that begins in the Old Testament. All things were set in motion in Scripture by God's decree to the serpent who had deceived Eve in the garden that there would come a day when a child born of the woman would crush the head of the dragon, Satan. And so you see attempts by Satan to thwart this decree of judgment and doom from God almost from the very beginning. You see it in his efforts to corrupt humanity that led to God's judgment in flood. And then, and this is frequently missed, you see it in his assault on Israel that began with Abraham actually trying to pass off Sarah as his sister, opening up the possibility that she could be taken advantage of sexually and conceived by another man, which would derail, in Satan's mind, God's efforts to bring one through this woman. You see it in Israel's idolatry, which ultimately resulted in its judgment at the hands of the Babylonians, and you even see it in in Herod's efforts to kill the child Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. All of those things are, are letting us know the spiritual background to the history of God's people on earth. That's easy in all likelihood for us to pick up on fairly quickly. But there is this enigmatic reference to 1260 days. What does that mean? We are told after Christ completed his work, after he was caught up, that the woman was carried away and protected. That's a figure that is used a few times in Revelation, that number 1260, and it's always used to correspond to a period of persecution faced by the people of God. So the point being made with the imagery is that when persecution came to God's people, that 1260 days, God provided for his people and cared for his people so that the purposes and plans of Satan to come against them and destroy them completely could not be realized. So verses 1 through 6 give us a glimpse at the eternal nature of Satan's opposition. He has always worked to stop God's redeeming purposes for our redemption and to stop God's care for us. But he has, every single time, been defeated. The means of that defeat is what holds together the second vision in Revelation chapter 12. We're not going to read it. I would encourage you to go and read it on your own. But Revelation 7 and, uh, through 12 tell us of a war in heaven in which Satan is defeated and cast down to earth. Now, the natural thing to do if you have kind of an understanding of uh, the things of Scripture is to think that this refers to the original fall of Satan. But in context, I think it is meant to picture for us how Christ's work on the cross, which Satan has not been able to stop, led to his ultimate final defeat. The reason I think that is because of what we read in verses 10 and 11 of Revelation 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And note this, these who have been accused have conquered 
him, the dragon, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony about, in context, the blood of the lamb, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Did you notice the connection between the, the description of Satan's defeat to the death of Christ on the cross? We are told that he was ultimately defeated and in the lives of his people is continually defeated by the blood of Jesus. The cross, which Satan meant to fulfill his plan to finally defeat God, was actually the instrument God used to bring about the defeat of Satan. So in the first part of this vision, one through six, we see historical context. Satan has always been trying to work against the Messiah's coming. We see in verses 7 through 12 that he was finally fully defeated at the cross, that the blood of Jesus brings about the ultimate defeat of Satan. So where does that leave Satan? What's he got left in his little bag of tricks if he can't stop God from doing the ultimate? This. In an enraged and embittered way, if he can't stop God, He's going to do his best to hurt those that he loves. Most of us get that viscerally. I mean, we can take a lot on ourselves. But you hurt someone we love, and you've crossed a line. That's what Satan thinks he can do. Well, if I couldn't stop God, I can hurt him. I can hurt him by hurting his people. In verses 13 through 17, provide us that picture of a defeated Satan wreaking havoc on the woman and her offspring, an enraged Satan who has been able to stop God's purposes from being fulfilled in Christ, has set his sights on destroying God's people. So, so, so chapter 12 frames for us from the eternal perspective the nature of spiritual opposition to God's people that has existed since God decreed Satan's defeat in the garden. But it also gives us some insight into what is to come. We, we now move from that just kind of, here's a frame of reference to getting actual intel on what Satan will do when history finally unspools to try to bring about this hurt against God by destroying his people. That's in chapter 13, and it's there we learn of the enemy's coming deception. And it depends, this deception, on deceiving an unwitting world to yield themselves fully to Satan and partner with him in bringing about the destruction of God's people by waging war against believers. Now, we're told that this will take place through the influence of an unholy trinity of a dragon and two beasts. In Revelation 13, we are introduced to a dragon and two beasts. We've already seen who the dragon is. The dragon is Satan. But what are we to make of these two other beasts? Well, the first beast is the great beast. It is the one when we refer to the beast of Revelation that we are referring to. It is, in more common language, the Antichrist. And it is marked by its clear association to the dragon, to Satan. 
like the dragon. It has seven heads and is thus to be understood as the physical manifestation, personification on earth of the dragon. After his introduction, we are told that he possesses the authority, the actual authority of Satan in verse 4, that he blasphemes the name of God in verses 5 and 6, that he will war victoriously against the saints, that he will actually inflict physical hardship and persecution against the saints in verse 7. And then we are told that he will receive actual worship of a non-believing world in verse 8. Now, there's little doubt of two things. Number one, that... John, when he heard this description of the beast, would have immediately gone back to the book of Daniel because this vision is very similar to the description of, of a, a dragon, of, a, of an unholy beast in the book of Daniel, which is meant to point ultimately ahead to this time. But there's also little doubt at all that the template that God used to show God or show John this future champion of Satan was actually the city, the nation state of Rome. Rome has seven hills and the descriptors of the beast and the dragon show him as having seven heads. There is zero doubt that John would have made that connection. He would have understood, okay, I get it. That which is about to come is not unlike the unholy nation state of Rome, which is demanding worship of the emperor. Therefore, he would have understood, and we need to understood, that there has, in a sense, been many beasts throughout history. There have been many antichrists. It is the deification of governmental authority that demands allegiance, that demands excessive praise and arrays itself against the people of God. And all of this, while it has always existed at various times throughout history, will manifest itself in a final and awful way at history's close. The coming beast will be a supreme geopolitical leader or perhaps geopolitical entity who is Satan personified and represents a nation state that demands absolute total allegiance and that will also have very important here religious overtones. A nation state that demands total allegiance that has religious overtones which brings us then to the second beast. Clearly, what John has in mind as he hears this description is the imperial priesthood of his day, the imperial priesthood which demanded and enforced the worship of the Roman Caesar on the local level. It was this, this religious leadership elite at the local level which would have been bringing, along with the Jews of the synagogue, the greatest threat against the people of God in any given Community And folks, there's always been a religious ruling class willing to do the bidding of an unholy ruler in order to achieve power and in order to achieve standing in the world. Just as it is with the first beast, this will manifest itself in a final and awful way in history's final chapter. So, so let's make sure we can see very clearly what's going on. Satan has attempted to corrupt the purposes of God. He could not stop God from bringing about the Messiah, bringing about his defeat on the cross, and creating a people who are 
essentially the inhabitants of the Spirit of God on earth. He couldn't stop that from happening. So what does he do? He corrupts it and he makes something in his own image. As Satan, he has the personification of himself on earth, a person, as Jesus was the personification of the eternal God on earth. And he creates a, a ruling class of elite that attempt to bring uh, the world to worship the beast, just as the Holy Spirit works in our world to bring the world to worship Jesus. Do you see what he's doing? He is creating an alternative reality spiritually where he has placed himself in charge. It is his final solution to destroy God's people as a geopolitical power with a complicit religious class that demands God-like devotion that will manifest itself and array itself against God's people in history's final act. These two beasts will control every facet of life, political life, religious life, secular life, even economic life, which brings us when we get to the end of chapter 13, to what for many in the book of Revelation is the moment everyone's been waiting for. Because we get to talk about the mark of the beast. Anytime you even just say the word, it's like, ooh, the mark of the beast. I mean, popcorn, you know, and let's dim the lights and get, ooh, the mark of the beast. What is it? Listen closely. I have no idea. I have no idea. And I'm in good company. It's such an enigmatic thing, the number of a man, 666. It's so enigmatic that in a hundred years after the book of Revelation was given to the world, a man who we'll call a preacher for lack of a better designation, Irenaeus, was asked, what was the mark of the beast? And he says, a hundred years later, I don't have any idea. The only thing that is for certain is that everyone who has tried to guess and pinpoint what it is will very quickly be made to look a fool. In my lifetime, I'll be 55 in a few months, in my lifetime, it has been the UPC code. Remember when that started showing up on your, you know, bag of chips? Oh, there's a mark of the beast. He's getting me through the Fritos, the, the UPC code. Then when the credit card quit being that thing, and go, and some of you remember what I'm talking about, and started to be that magnetic strip. There it is. It's that magnetic strip. And then it became the chip in the card that you put in, and then thank you, 2020, it's become imaginary, non-existent microchips and a COVID vaccine. <laughs> These things all are pointed to by people who are conspiratorial and who think they know more than what they do, saying that 2,000 years of Christian history hasn't been able to figure it out, but I got it nailed. We just don't know what it will be. But we can know this, when God's people who are alive, when history comes to a close see it, they know immediately what it is. That's the clear picture of Revelation 13. 
when they see it, they know. The world's deceived. But God's people are not deceived. They won't read about it on Facebook. They won't hear about it from some conspiracy-minded friend. Frankly, folks, it may not even be a real physical mark. Remember, Satan is doing his very best to uh, create an alternative reality where there's this unholy trinity and create an unholy people that are called by his name. And if you will remember, the people of God, the 144,000, Revelation chapter 7, are sealed with a mark. We're not ever understanding that mark is a physical kind of mark. It's just a sign that we belong to God. It may be that that is what the mark of the beast is. It may be just a declared allegiance to this beast and his complicit religious ruling class. We don't know, but we do know when God's people see it, they will not be deceived. And so we've learned today that opposition to God's redeeming purposes is frankly woven into the very fabric of the universe in which we live and that it will all unspool in a final, full, awful assault against God's people when history reaches its final chapter and we've also learned that it will fail. In fact, we've learned that it has already failed because of the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. When I gave my life to Jesus as Savior and Lord on March the 26th, 1978, the decree of victory over my life was set in stone. Because the decree of victory at the cross was set in stone. It does not mean at all that I won't face hardship for my allegiance to Jesus as Savior and Lord. But the best intel we have from behind enemy lines lets us know it'll never work. The plan of Satan, the plan of the enemy, will never work. And we started in Revelation 14 to remind us at the outset that that is true. Remember again, the message from Revelation 7, the 144,000, is a symbol representing the people of God, the church. In history's final chapter, they are marked with the Father's name, and as a result, they sing the Father's song. They sing the song of the redeemed, and as a result, they have not defiled themselves. The, the sexual imagery of Revelation 14.4, I think, is meant to be taken in an Old Testament sense, where the prophets used the language of sexual immorality to convey the worship of idols. So those sealed by the Father are not deceived into false worship of the beast. They're also known for their obedience. No lie is in their mouth. They are blameless. And with that kind of frame of reference, understanding that chapter 12 gives us some, some historical, eternal kind of background on what Satan's been up to, and with the intel of chapter 13 showing us where Satan is going, now we can get in the weeds. 
Now we can spend our time studying and debating with one another exactly the, the timing and the nature and all of that kind of thing with the return of Christ. I hope you'll do that on your own. But what do we do with this today? What do we do with this survey of things today? Let me give you two things. First, and this may be the key that unlocks my weirdness for many of you. People looking at me all the time and saying, what is up with that guy? But, but I think this text brings us to this conclusion. First, we must see the satanic fingerprints all over any effort to mix religion and politics. We have to. The final persecution of the true church will be at the hands of a conjoined political and religious state. This has been true before in Christian history, and it will be true on steroids at the end. Second, we must not fear or be surprised by persecution. In the last year or so, I have started watching on uh, Disney Plus, The Mandalorian. How many of you have been watching The Mandalorian? A few of you. What does The Mandalorian always say when he makes, when he makes a statement about what he's going to do? He says, this is the way. This is the way. When I say to you, do not be surprised or fear persecution, this is the way. This is the way of the cross. This is what surrendering yourself to Jesus means. Surrendering to Jesus, surrendering to his cross, means that when all things come to a close, all things will be arrayed against it. But just as the defeat was resounding and clear 2,000 years ago, it will be resounding and clear at the return of Christ. So we must not fear. I've said this a million times. I'm going to say it until you're sick of me hearing it. Stop wringing your hands. Stop running around panicked. It does nothing to bear positive testimony of the victory of the cross. It makes our Jesus look weak. It makes our faith look inconsequential. It makes us look common. Don't fear. Because we will sing with the chorus of heaven as we saw in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto Let's go to the Lord in prayer.